Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try and fail to watch everything. I am your friendly neighbor next door, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by my neighbor uh, across the internet, Diane Nora. We're, we're just good old neighbors, aren't we? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. How are you doing, Chris? Oh, I'm just feeling like the, the salt of the earth, like a true middle American who, you know, totally unassuming, couldn't possibly be guilty of anything. I could go for a big gulp. A real big brand, no brand associated big gulp. Just a large fountain beverage, I believe is uh, what they will refer that mm-hmm. as. Yeah. Uh, we, are, we are talking, of course, about the thing about Pam, because everybody's talking about the thing about Pam. I'm sure as soon as we said generic fountain beverage, everyone went, oh, Pam. Uh, it. It does look like it's about the size of her head, so. Uh, yeah, I do wonder uh, how many prop cups they had to go through to find the one that was the correct size ratio for the uh, strange amount of prosthetics on Renee Zellweger's face. But we will get there when we talk about this NBC series based on a Dateline podcast, based on an episode of Dateline, based on a true event that happened in, I don't know, I want to say 1992 based on the hairstyles. But again, we will get there in the second half of our show when we review the thing about Pam. Uh, But first, as always, I want to get started with some follow-up, and this time I have a little transition for us. Oh, no. Oh, no, it's the song. It's the song that the day is starting over again. No. It's, of course, Russian Doll. And uh, I have news about Russian Doll Season 2, which we have talked about before. If you're not familiar with Russian Doll Season 1, that music cue means nothing to you. But if you've seen it, it is a Pavlovian tick in the back of your memory for the rest of your life. We've talked about this before. You have not seen all of Russian Doll, have you? I haven't. I've seen the pilot, and I thought it was great. The reason I didn't watch it was just a life got in the way kind of thing. How dare that? But nothing is... (laughs) nothing's keeping me from it uh beyond you know overbooking myself perpetually uh but um the the fact that the second season is coming out does make me want to go back and watch the first yes and the second season is coming april 20th as we talked about before but now we know a little bit more because when we talked about it previously the question was would they repeat the groundhog day premise of the first season because if you're not familiar in brief the first season uh natasha leone's character relives her 36th birthday over and over and over again dying in ever increasingly bizarre ways uh before the end of the day and then reverting back to a bathroom at her birthday party where we hear none other than I realize my eyes bugging out of my head doesn't translate to the podcast, but that's what it feels like every time. Just a a dead (laughs) stare, eyes bugging out of your head as you hear, gotta get up, gotta get out. But that is season one. Season two is going to take a different time travel vibe because in a new profile in the latest issue of The New Yorker, uh, they reveal that the inspiration is more back to the future. Because in this season, and I guess extremely light spoiler alerts here because it's in like the third paragraph of a New Yorker profile, uh, in an early scene, I'm just reading this from the New Yorker right now, in an early scene, Nadia, that's Natasha Leone's character, discovers that she has teleported via the number six train to 1982, the year she was born, as happens on the number six train sometimes, which is why you always take the express. Always. Don't get on the local. I'm glad to hear they're mixing it up. 
Yeah, I actually think that that puts uh, a lot more promising. longevity on the concept of the show to me that it's exploring trauma through time travel in all its different forms. And if that isn't a buzzy hook for a show premiering on the stoner holiday, uh, trauma through tra- time travel, I don't know what is. Particularly when you have an actor as strong as Natasha Leon uh, starring in in the program, you know. That's, not, just, that's a hook. not just starring, because that's the other part of this profile in The New Yorker. This season, Natasha Leone takes over as showrunner from uh, her co-creator and Leslie Headland, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. in addition, she wrote four episodes and directed three of the seven episodes total. And yet, yes, my hesitation there was once again because I'm just reading you The New Yorker. Welcome to The New Yorker Radio Hour's Cheap Knockoff, Stream Again. I love it. Uh, I would have you read me The New Yorker any day, but um, particularly this news. That's really exciting. I mean, she I think she's brilliant. And um, so now I have a couple weeks to catch up on Russian Doll and then watch the new season. Yeah, this this got me excited for the new season. Uh, and, and there's a little bit more light spoilering in the New Yorker article. But in general, it's a really interesting profile of Natasha Leone. We'll have a link in the show notes. And then you can find out whether you're paywalled out of the NewYorker.com or not. And that <laughs> takes us to our next follow-up story. Uh, another time travel through trauma story, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think I can make that that transition work. We're traveling back in oh. time to, to Obi-Wan's you know, loner years, watching Anakin through, uh, I'm sorry, watching Luke through the the binoculars. That's what we saw in the trailer. If you haven't seen the trailer for Obi-Wan Kenobi, he looks lonely, he looks a little haggard, and he's just kind of stalking Luke Skywalker. But that's cool. It's all in good fun, I think. Yeah, I mean, it does seem a little bit moody in terms of tone, but also exciting. Moody, exciting. No, well, I th- yeah, I mean, because it's Star Wars, you know, you still expect some uh, action adventure in there, uh, but but it does look like it's um, you know, uh, got a certain grittiness that they're going for. Yes, I I feel like every Star Wars show is going for a certain grittiness, some more successfully than others, but this one also showed off. More of the moody angle. We saw some very neon-soaked kind of dark cityscapes that at least look like they're not on Tatooine because maybe the one major complaint of the Star Wars shows right now is, is Tatooine the only planet in the universe? Uh, so I, I'm curious to see where that goes. That's not why I brought it up, though. I just can't help but talk about Ewan McGregor looking moody and through binoculars. Uh, but they have Disney+. Plus has shaken up the release strategy for it. They've moved the release date back two days, causing the the premiere of Obi-Wan Kenobi to go up against the episode drops for the first half of the new season of Stranger Things. And and to compensate, I guess, Disney is going to drop two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi at once. So there's an interesting experiment going on here where they, they want to try to hook people with two episodes instead of one, which is not uncommon right now. And, and honestly, I like that as a, a setup for a new streamer, a new series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to go up against Stranger Things, do you think that's on purpose or do you think that's just kind of a coincidence? I think it's on purpose. <laughs> I want it to be on um, purpose. That's the drama I'm here for. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've, realize that uh word of mouth and early online buzz seems to make a big difference for shows and if they can 
get generate some for Obi-Wan and also, you know, take the wind out of Netflix's sales. That seems like a win-win. Yeah. I, but, I also wonder if the fear was we come out on Wednesday and then only drop one episode. So people have like one episode to talk about. And then a bunch of episodes of Stranger Things drop two days later. And suddenly the only thing people are talking about or posting about is Stranger Things. And and maybe if the fear was they would lose their premiere buzz just by the the order of numbers that uh, people would have a sure. binge weekend with Stranger Things and better to go up head to head against it than risk getting subsumed by the wave of Stranger Things. So if it's your call, which would you tune into first? Obviously, Moody, you and looking through the binoculars. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would tend toward that, too. I might also be a season behind of Stranger Things. It's a, it's a show that feels less urgent each season. I, I know the feeling a little bit. I think Netflix does, too. But we've talked about that before, and we'll talk about it again mm-hmm. when the new season of Stranger Things comes out. So instead, we'll move on to my last piece of follow-up. And and this one, I just have to say, I guess I have to eat my hat. Because uh, in the last episode, we talked about the MGM Amazon merger. Amazon has acquired MGM and along with it the rights to the James Bond oeuvre. And we pointed out that uh, Amazon cannot just go make a bunch of James Bond shows or James Bond movies direct to streaming because the Broccoli family uh, has a stake in the James Bond IP and they get to basically approve any new James Bond story. But they don't get to approve a new James Bond game show. And that's why I am thrilled to tell you that uh, they are already making a James Bond reality game show for Amazon Prime. That took no time at all. I'm so curious about this. So uh, the show is going to be called 007 Road to a Million. Because the prize is a million pounds. Wow. Do, Do they let you ride in the fancy cars, you think? Or do you have to... Bring your own Aston Martin. I mean, the the little bit I read makes it sound, and the information we have is from a casting call, basically. They are asking teams mm-hmm. of two to apply to be on this, uh, what, what do they call it, a global challenge series. So I, I read into that and immediately went, oh, it's an amazing race knockoff. Amazing race, right. Yeah, and and they, you have to bring your own things mostly to that show. Well, and so then maybe amazing race meets some like spy intrigue. Right. And they mentioned some like general knowledge information. So maybe there's there's kind of a spy knowledge element. Maybe they give you some interesting trinkets. Maybe somebody is like, you know, Q or M, whichever one gives the trinkets out. The gadgets. Gadget Mm -hmm. man. Ben Wishaw is what I'm saying. Maybe Ben Wishaw is involved. Ooh, that might help me tune in. That would absolutely help me tune in. I have no evidence of that except my wish casting. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually be a little surprised if that were the case. Um, <laughs> but never say never. You know, Amazon's got the money. Who knows? But that is that is what's happening with the James Bond IP less than like two weeks after the uh, MGM acquisition. Just, whoa, someone at Amazon had their finger on the hit send button waiting to just send that out. Wild. But you know what else is wild? The new news. Because we have a top story that I think is the most important streaming story of the year. I'm just going to call it. It's April, and uh, there is no news in the streaming universe that will top this story for the rest of 2022. Are you ready for it? Hit me. HBO Max has added a shuffle button. 
I forgot to cue up some applause, but just imagine a roaring crowd of applause right here. Um, so I wonder what, the, what like, sort of market research told them. You don't sound as do excited this? as you're supposed to be. Uh, Diane, <laughs> did you not hear me say HBO Max has added a shuffle button? Oh, my God. Thank you very much. And obviously the market <laughs> research was me. They got in my head and they went, what do, what do we need? We need a shuffle button. And then they screwed up because it's not available for the West Wing. Okay, but the West Wing goes in order. I mean, I know that there are individual storylines. Okay, if you've seen every episode 14 times, you don't need to watch it in order anymore. Watching it in order now is a burden. I need just big block of cheese day thrown at me out of the blue. Okay. I mean, I kind of like to scroll through and watch my favorite episodes of shows, so I don't necessarily do my rewatches in order. Like, I'll definitely cut to my favorite season and watch those again. I'm not sure that I that I get the shuffle button, but you're selling me on it. You're selling me on it. Well, I, I, I think I can. I think I can make you okay. believe in the shuffle button. And I think HBO Max understands where they're going with this because it's available currently for 45 different shows. And they are shows like uh, Adventure Time, Rick and Morty, South Park. Interestingly enough, Sesame Street, but that also makes sense to me because these are shows where you know you want to watch an episode of it, but if you have seen them all, you do not necessarily care which episode. And in fact, if you have a favorite, you maybe watched that one ten times already and you'd actually like to watch one you forgot about. Uh, Some more examples because I'm all about the list here. Uh, Fresh Prince, Full House, Friends, and of course, ER. Which I forgot I could stream. And now, you know what? I kind of just want to go smash that shuffle button for some good old-fashioned ER. Young Clooney. Young Clooney. Mm. Except if you're going to shuffle, you don't know that you'll get Young Clooney. Okay, okay, don't freak me out, okay? (laughs) By the time the opening credits come up, I can skip to another one if I don't like it. That's true. I mean, it does seem all the time like streaming is getting more and more like turning on TV. Yes, it should be. I need this for Seinfeld. Very specifically, I cannot bring myself to choose an episode of Seinfeld anymore. I have too many opinions about the different seasons. And then I think, well, am I in the mood for a season six or more like a season three? And then I start to think about like, oh, what about the one with the the babka? And then I'm thinking about food episodes and the junior mint. And then I've wasted 30 minutes that I could have used to watch an episode and a half of Seinfeld just thinking about episodes of Seinfeld. I need the shuffle button for those shows. I get it. I I think that this is going to be really fantastic for you. And hopefully the folks at HBO Max will hear your plea and say, sure, we could do that for the West Wing. Please, please do. I just any Bartlett, any Bartlett, maybe add a filter so that if I'm not in the mood for the Santos season, because that that mixes things up a lot. No, it's good. Do not make me come over there and re-educate you on how good the final season of The West Wing is. Because honestly, they should have just kept going with Santos as president and never ended it. And we'd all be living in a better country. In a better world. I just like it when shows end. I think (laughs) I'd rather see a show end before it's time than um, fade away. You know? You know. Don't go gentle into the good night. I agree with you, and yet I can I can also disagree with you, and that's the beauty of the streaming universe. It's just, it, it brings out <laughs> multitudes in all of us. It does. It really does. 
And speaking of things the streaming universe is bringing out of all of us, video game series. It's a hard transition, but I tried. Uh, Video game series are all the rage. Uh, We've talked before about Paramount Plus and their big plans for Knuckles the Echidna's spinoff series, which is very topical this week because the Sonic the Hedgehog sequel, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, is coming out uh, this week and introduces Knuckles the Echidna, voiced by Idris Elba, which again is just a phrase that like you have to sit on for a minute. Uh, But that's not the only paramount plus video game inspired tv series in the news because if you have not been paying attention to the many animated billboards outside subway stations in new york they have a halo series have you seen those ads just kind of creepily staring at you from every subway entrance it's a lot of pretty people putting on helmets or taking off helmets you really can't look away no, it's like they're following you. Their eyes just kind of follow you. And then they put the helmet on and you're like, are you still following me with your eyes? I can't tell that the helmet is is too reflective. It's the new Mona Lisa. It's true. It's true. Halo is the new Mona Lisa. And, <laughs> and Halo is extremely popular. The video game series, of course, extremely popular. But Paramount Plus would love us to know that the TV show is also extremely popular and logged their best streaming premiere since uh, Yellowstone spinoff 1883, uh, outperforming Yellowstone spinoff 1883. So, so far, setting the high watermark for Paramount Plus premieres. What is that high watermark? How high is it? Could we measure it in millions of viewers? Nobody knows except the people at Paramount, and they definitely have no interest in telling us anything else. I think that the move toward video game shows for adults seems smart. I agree. Seems really smart. It, it, it seems um, to be an unstoppable force right now because uh, there's Halo. N- Knuckles the Echidna, fine. Maybe not exactly geared towards adults, but I think geared no. towards adults with kids. Because kids, sure. I, I remember the Sonic the Hedgehog animated series from the 90s. And was it good? No. But if I had a kid who wanted to watch a video game show, I'd be like, hey, let's put on the one that has a character I remember. If there is nostalgia, there is a streaming service out there ready to exploit it. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, And that is not the only major, dark, gritty video game series coming soon. Amazon has their own uh, franchise. You know, if you're not really familiar in the video game world, Halo is a huge franchise on Xbox. But another really big franchise is Fallout which is a post-apocalyptic series set after uh, nuclear wars kind of ravaged the country and people are coming out of their fallout shelters and there's a variety of fallout games set in a variety of wastelands. I watched one of my roommates play Fallout New Vegas for like a year straight in, I don't know, let's say 1972, whenever that was. And uh, it's gripping. It's really interesting world building. So I can see how it's a great concept for a TV show. And so what we know right now is that Amazon is doing a Fallout series. The setting and the era, and is it based on a particular game in the series? Nobody has any idea. What we do know are two of the stars. Walton Goggins, sign me up. And this week Mm -hmm. we learned Ella Purnell from Yellow Jackets, so also sign me up. We have no idea what they're playing, what's going on, anything else about it. And who cares? Because I'm already sold. Yeah, I mean, those two are fantastic, so... I would give it a shot. And I, and and we are only going to see more stories like this because uh, later this year, Mario is getting a movie. 
And if that doesn't tell you that every video game character ever is going to have their own series or movie in the next 24 months, let me tell you, Charlie Day is playing Luigi. I love Charlie Day. I do too. And that will make me see this very ill-conceived movie where Chris Pratt is Mario and Charlie Day is Luigi. And how does any of that sentence make any sense? I have more faith in Idris Elba is Knuckles than I have in Charlie Day is Luigi. And yet I want it to work because I love Charlie Day. And I, unpopular opinion, but I love Luigi. (laughs) If there's an actor who could make it work, I think it's Charlie Day. I agree. So we'll see. There, there's just so much video game content on the horizon. If we if we missed a video game show, if there's a video game that you, dear listener, want to see turned into a show, I mean, my answer is always Animal Crossing. I would just watch a kind of mind-numbing, hours-long show about digging up fossils in a small island sure. community. Actually, I'm already I'm feeling sold on this. It's a small island community rebuilding itself from scratch and they find fossils in the back and what will they do with them? That's also sort of a plot line in episode 1 or 2 of Yellowstone. Now that I think back on on Yellowstone. <laughs> maybe maybe if we'd stuck with Yellowstone, I'd discover that it's the Animal Crossing spin-off show I've been waiting for. One can dream. <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty dark dream. But you know what else is kind of a dark dream? The mid-2010s, when every single app or website had to have an original series. Do you remember this era, Diane? Oh, vividly. Vividly, right? Web series were a big thing. I don't know who was watching all these app series, and maybe it, it was not a lot of people. Facebook had their streaming channel called Facebook Watch. Yahoo had Yahoo Screen. And I, I, the year that is seared into my brain is 2014, because that is the year that Yahoo got the rights to the new season of Community. And in order to watch new episodes of Community, you had to go to Yahoo Screen. What? Okay, I totally missed that. Oh, yes. Well, guess what? 2014 lives on, because now you can watch a new streaming comedy on Grindr. The... The world never fails to surprise me. I mean, it does sound kind of cute. It sounds like a fun show. I would watch this show. It's uh, called Bridesman. Bridesman. And guess what it's about? A bridesman. Bridesman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And specifically, it's starring actor Jimmy Fowley, whose name I, I would not recognize, but whose face I absolutely would because he played one of the insta-gays in season two of The Other Two, which if you're not watching The Other Two, honestly, I encourage you to just turn this podcast off and start watching The Other Two right now. You have my permission. Uh, It's streaming on HBO Max. Just go. Go now. But uh, he's hilarious. And if you do remember The Other Two, he was one of the gays who moved upstate to flip houses, which, again, just... Mm, two on the nose in a beautiful way and in this series on grinder he is a bridesman trying to uh, sabotage or break up his best friend's wedding which again who doesn't want to watch that no i mean i'm i think that sounds cute i i love a good rom-com and uh this seems like kind of sweet which is maybe not what i would expect from grinder uh but you know I would check it out. Well, the good news is you can watch it on Grindr, or if you'd prefer not to download Grindr, you can watch it on YouTube. <laughs> but I do think there's some strategy here on, li- listen, if you're on Grindr, there's downtime. There's frequently time where you're not doing mm. anything, 
but waiting for someone to respond to you. And why not watch a funny show? Yeah, I mean, and then it's a conversation starter. Huh? Hmm? I see what they're doing yeah. there. It's also maybe the Grinder generation is aging and may need other reasons to log on to Grinder now as their libidos wane. Who knows? Who <laughs> knows what the motivation is behind this extremely 2014 strategy move from Grinder? But I am here for it. If they'd like to reboot Community, honestly, I, I it, it would be a disaster. There's too many problems with that cast now. But man, if they wanted to reboot Community, even with just two actors and four sock puppets and Dan Harmon objecting vehemently in the background, I would watch every episode. If they do reboot Community, I hope that they put it on Grinder and not on Yahoo. <laughs> Yahoo screen. Well, great news. Yahoo is a shell of a website Ooh. now. I don't think they even have the budget to air their own episodes of Community anymore. The, the true meaning of this episode is to pay tribute to the heroes <laughs> of Yahoo screen. And with that, let's talk about the thing about Pam. Coming to you live from Studio 812 in Rockefeller Center, I'm Keith Morrison, and this is a Dateline spinoff of a Dateline podcast of a Dateline episode, and it's called The Thing About Pam. Uh, so, The Thing About Pam is that it's a lot better than I thought it would be. <laughs> Let's start there. If you're not familiar with it, this is airing on NBC and streaming on Peacock, of course. And it stars Renee Zellweger in her first television role, which is the, the kind of selling point that they went with on the the promotional stint. But it's also kind of addictive, kind of great. We're going to talk a lot about the first three episodes. So if somehow you, you don't want to be spoiled on something that is already extremely public knowledge due to the fact that it was a podcast and an episode of Dateline and a real event that occurred many, many years ago. Okay, then make your spoiler decision now because it's good. But also, I think you'll enjoy it just as much if we talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a show where... So it's a murder. It's the murder show. We're in, we're in the murder show realm. But there's not ambiguity about who the murderer is at all Really it's ever. Pam. Pam. It's Pam. The That's the thing about her. <laughs> so I was a little perplexed by that at first. I was like, are, so they're not even going to try and make it any sort of whodunit. It's more about will she be caught? But we know it, that she will be. It's because a why it's based done on it. a real thing. A why done it? That's well said. Yeah. Yeah. What is what is her deal? Um, what, another good title for this show would be What's the deal with Pam? <laughs> I kind of like that. Honestly, tonally, that might sort of fit because the show is a little broad. It almost feels like a comedy sometimes in the way that it's edited. Um, it's not. It's it's like about 40-something minutes per episode, yeah, it, 45 a, minutes per episode. It's a network so it's really drama, a... but, mm -hmm. but it, it, it does have extremely comedic tonal moments, and it does sometimes feel like a parody of itself. It does, and that seems very intentional. Some of the actors they've cast are also great comedic actors. Um, Judy Greer. Yes, yes. Judy Greer. so much. Or, as, as she changed my life, Arrested Development's Kitty Sanchez. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And she plays 
a, a district attorney who's trying to put the wrong man in prison, ve- vehemently trying to put the wrong man in prison. She is just in it to ruin this man's life. And it's so funny. It is. I mean, it's sick, though. And then I remember that it's real people and I feel and it's a upsetting. little bit. Yeah, I feel a little bit gross about it, which I would say is my biggest complaint about the show is that I'm not sure it's ethical. But then at the same time, when I think about Dateline, I think that people are watching Dateline for entertainment purposes, yes. too. You know, you're you're not getting some great education from watching Dateline. You're using real horrific crimes and trauma that people have experienced for your entertainment, uh, which is not a knock on the Dateline journalists, because in this case, it seems like from where the show is going, they, you know, may really put some bad help put some bad people behind bars but yes but actually this this was my revelation over the course of the four episodes i watched was that mm-hmm. the, the show is acknowledging that dateline sort of is exploitation it, it it sort of is a form of torture porn that we watch because we want to be entertained by the horrific grisly things other people have done dateline just to, to put this back in your brain dateline is the show that made a thing out of to catch a predator Dateline's hallmark shtick for a while was setting up people to be caught on camera trying to have sexual relations with minors. And we watched this for entertainment in this country. It's deeply unsettling, isn't it? And so by that standard, this show is lighthearted fair. Let me tell you, this show is having fun with itself and acknowledging that, yes, horrible things are done and you are watching it for entertainment. Yeah, I mean, with the recent, it's not even recent anymore, but the rise of the true crime genre sort of exploding. Why do you listen to true crime podcasts? What was the whole rise of serial about? Were you helping Adnan by listening to Serial? No, you were, you know, kind of chomping on audible popcorn, uh, hearing about how his life was ruined, and then forming your opinions and talking with your friends. And why do you think, you know, so and so said what they said? Absolutely. You know, I mean, the fun part is having the the sort of working theories about these cases, Mm -hmm. I think is a big part of it. And That, to me, brings me back to a little bit of confusion about the structure of the thing about Pam, because we know, really, what she did. We know what she (laughs) did. And they tell us. Yeah, if if you had missed the case, you would know within the first 10 minutes of the pilot what she did, or at least part of it. Because it seems like she's going to do more bad things. Yes. And and you have no doubt that she is the kind of mustache-twirling villain Except instead of a mustache, she has the giant generic fountain soda. That That's the setup from the get-go. And the tone does some of its most kind of arch, funny, weird stuff in the very beginning to make it clear to you that this that there is no moral ambiguity in this show. The, the people who are bad are doing bad things. And the people who are mm-hmm. innocent are are completely innocent and there is no gray area for you to trouble yourself with that's true yeah i mean a lot of the characters are very broad though i do think some of them are a little more grounded like um the daughters of the deceased uh have both like not only in their performances but in their writing are like a little bit more human whereas pam is uh, almost cartoonish 
and by design. I don't think yes. it's. I think that Renee Zellweger is, she, is doing. She's what chewing she the scenery, to do. which is exactly what they asked her to do. They invited her in right. to have a blast, and she is enjoying it. I and and that is one reason to watch the show. It's not the only reason to watch the show, though, because there is something much again i you know with all due respect to the horrible things that were done to certain people in the real story that this is based on it's really entertaining it is i um flew through three episodes and intend to burn through the rest of them as soon as i can yeah with the the series is a six episode run the fifth episode will have been released by the time you, dear listener, are hearing our voices. And if you listen to this promptly, the sixth episode will be right around the corner. But but honestly, by the time you hear this, you can probably binge the whole thing. And it is very binge-worthy. I, I almost would argue that the weekly release format hurts it because I... I struggled after episode one to gear myself up for episode two, and then I blew through two, three, and four back to back to back, because suddenly I understood the addictive quality they were going for, and how each episode, especially after the first, because the first you do you do wonder kind of what are they going for, but after the second right. episode, it becomes pretty clear what they're going for, and they leave you a nice hook at the end of each one for what's next. And- Pam's manipulations and machinations become more outrageous as the episodes accumulate. And that part of it, too, is so bingeable. You're just like, what What crazy thing is she going to do next? Yes. They're kind of crazy. They're kind of despicable. And they're kind of amateurish. And a big part of the show is looking at it and going, I can't believe she got away with this as long as she did. And they and a big part of the show is explaining why. And it has to do with the small town nature of where she committed the crime and the fact that the DA and the cops immediately decided that Pam, um, I'm sorry, not Pam. Pam is not the victim here. The victim is her good friend, Betsy. Betsy's murdered and they immediately blame Betsy's husband, Ross. Not Ross, Russ. Can you tell I blew through the show with very little attention to the details of the victims? (laughs) This really speaks volumes about the genre that Dateline lives in. But the fact of the matter is, the story they're telling makes you want to root against the protagonist, who is Pam, and Mm -hmm. root against the vast majority of the characters you meet. Because the other main characters are primarily... uh, Kitty Sanchez, Judy Greer as Leah Askey, the DA, and uh, the cops in the town. And then we get Russ's uh, defense attorney, who is Joel Schwartz, played by the excellent Josh DeHamel, but with a haircut that says it's 1998. Ooh, that hair. Yeah. He's doing good work. Excellent work. He's really um, very likable in this. He seems bright. He seems to be sort of the, if anyone has a moral compass on the show, it's his character. And even even then, you know, he, he's maybe one of the closest main characters to a sense of ambiguity because they, they uh, frame him as the most successful defense attorney in St. Louis. This this mm-hmm. show takes place in an, a much smaller town and they, they bring in the big guns from St. Louis and yet he is mostly known for defending guilty people. And he comes in and extremely quickly decides that Russ is innocent. 
and that this is the one worth fighting for. And then they brush aside all of the moral ambiguity around his character. That's it. There's like this hint at the beginning of like, well, you know, he really defends guilty people a lot. And he's kind of a, you know, he's a player in the the legal defense field. And then then he like spends one interview with uh, the accused and is like, this this guy's legit. And I'm, I'm now a knight in shining armor. And that's all you need to know as a viewer. And then he does great work. But again, it's on that level of it, this is a show about good people and bad people mm-hmm. and the daughters who are in between. But man, that's that's small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got the righteous indignation bit down, down cold, though. Yeah. Overall, I think the acting on this show is really strong. I'm also really enjoying the performance uh, by uh, Glenn Fleshler, I think is his name, who plays Russ Faria, the accused. Yeah, which is actually probably some of the hardest acting in the show mm-hmm. uh, because he doesn't get to ham it up and have fun almost everyone else gets to ham it up a bit you know renee is hamming it up non-stop throughout the entire show judy greer is having a blast in a really mediocre black short wig that is pitch perfect for the role and uh even josh is Yes, he's a good guy. He's the good defense attorney fighting the good fight. But then there's also a scene where he's discussing the defense strategy with his co-counsel while playing guitar, like in a gazebo in a park. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) he's improving a song about the case and 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 they're all having fun. Whereas uh, our Glenn playing Russ he actually has to deliver the the actual pain of an actual husband whose wife was murdered. Then he finds the body, has a kind of panic attack, as you might if you found your wife stabbed to death like several mm-hmm. dozen times, you know? Yeah. And he calls 911. He, he makes the mistake of claiming that he thinks his wife killed herself because he doesn't look closely at the body and he's panicking. She definitely did not kill herself because, again, she was stabbed dozens of times, many times in the back. And so the police immediately think he did it. And he becomes wrongfully accused. And they do all of the dirty tricks. And a lot of the first episode is watching them do all of the dirty tricks that you've seen the police do on a dozen different shows. And, and in mm-hmm. a way, if there's any part of this show that's a public service, it's that they, they don't shy away from shining a really negative light on these small town police, not necessarily intentionally ruining a man's life, but intentionally ignoring any possible doubt that could exist, intentionally avoiding any other track of investigation because they made up their minds before they got there. And there's more examples of that throughout the following episodes where you see how even people who do not consider themselves to be evil by any stretch of the imagination, because these cops don't act like they are evil villains, can do incredibly evil, ignorant things. And, and no, this show is not a public service announcement, but I, I, that is perhaps a, a redeeming element of journalism hiding in, in the rough, that, that you can see mm-hmm. the roots of Dateline a little bit there, because that's how Dateline got engaged with the original story in a lot of ways. Sure. And I think that's true. I that there is a bit of a PSA in that sense. I don't want to oversell it. <laughs> it's just a little. No, no, but I I hear that point, sure. And I like that it's rather brazen about 
its exploitative nature. At the same time, the way they portray sort of small town middle American people makes me a little uncomfortable. The fat suit. We've got to talk about the fat suit. Renee Zellweger is in this ridiculous fat suit. Apparently, she had like a a bad reaction from the prosthetics on her face, too. I mean, it it looks very much like an actor in a fat suit. Yeah. And and I I did have notes in my kind of nonsensical scatterbrained notes document because a lot of this show just made me go. They said, what now? What was that narration? (laughs) But I I had some notes around how the, the show treads on some really rough stereotypes that the coastal elites have about middle America, where ugly people live, and then the ugliest of them do ugly things. And and that is super reductive, super upsetting, especially when you bring things like weight and and body image into it. And it's it's yet to be seen how much they'll lean on some of that in uncovering Pam's motivation, but having seen one more episode than you, Diane, I will say they do go in a direction of a facelift scene, and I did not enjoy that scene. Okay, so I kind of... <laughs> Let's talk about the facelift. So I I, I saw the, the lead-up to the facelift is that her mother has implied that she wants a facelift, and her mother is kind of uh, casually cruel to her in this one scene we see. And then we know that um, later it seems that her mother has been put into um, a home or that she's been... Um, she may have dementia. Pam says she has dementia. I have seen very little evidence of said dementia, but she definitely right. got put in a home. Yes, yeah, so she's been institutionalized, it seems like, without cause, um, which is also horrifying. Just seeing that she would... Uh, her mom teases her about her looks, suggesting that she needs a facelift. And then she puts her mom into some sort of facility and then gets the consultation for the facelift. I mean, yeah, it shows how how really rotten she is. This, I guess I'm just really torn about this show. Like, I want to continue watching it, and I'm shamelessly going to continue watching it. But it also is, it's a little, uh, it's a little yucky. <laughs> yes. And, and again, yeah. so is Dateline. Oh, that's, yeah. That's the bread and butter of a lot of these true crime shows. And I say this as somebody who spent many, many hours during the early days of the pandemic watching Snapped the true crime series mm. on oxygen about women who snap. And let me tell you, most of those stories are based out of middle America or parts of New Jersey you could easily mistake with middle America in terms of the assumptions and stereotypes you could present about the people who live there. And and is am I proud of that genre? No, no, I am not. But is it a well-trod genre in American storytelling and television? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And so many shows that are framed as prestige television still um, use these same stereotypes. And so in some ways, the fact that it is, you know, owning it in a really big way is kind of refreshing. That has been my feeling too. And that has been the entertaining angle is something that is not trying to make you think that this is serious. 
Getting getting back to my feeling that, yeah, there's a little bit of a PSA journalistic kernel somewhere in there, but that's not the point, and they do not want you to look at this as a piece of journalism. They want you to look at this as a ridiculous story about a ridiculous murder committed by a ridiculous person. And, and that's the refreshing element. And also like a portrait of a small town in which people live petty, venal lives. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And and um, and I I thought that broadened nicely when the the trial comes up in episode three because in in the third episode Russ goes to trial and the the conceit right away is that Leah Askey the DA went to high school with the judge and in fact there's a scene at a bar where they whip out their occasional use of like kind of fourth wall breaking title cards and and little Adam McKay style moments it, it, you know there's some moments in the show that remind me of the big short where suddenly they're giving me a little explainer on what's going on through fourth wall breaking elements and in the bar you have you know uh, Leah uh, celebrating over drinks for uh, you know prosecuting Russ with the judge across the bar sheepishly waving because the judge wasn't a cool kid in high school. And so she still has that vibe as she drinks her Shirley Temple at the bar. And then they cut to someone else congratulating Leah from across the bar and label him juror number two. And the point that they're putting together is this is a small town where everyone knows everyone and you can't get a fair shake if you're on the wrong side of the in crowd. And Leah is right. is very much set up as kind of the mean girl. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the facts of the case well enough to see any way that she could be defended. But everything that they've presented so far, it seems that her behavior is completely indefensible. So the fact that she's being portrayed as pretty craven and also foolish, you know, that part of it doesn't seem to be ethically thorny. I mean, they did put an innocent man in jail. So yes, in they prison, did. I should say. Yes, yes. for so, several um, years. Oh, Oh, my gosh. And then let a sociopath just march around um, the streets of town just and cash in on some sweet life insurance money. Because spoiler alert, again, I, I don't know how much you can spoil a thing that's been in the public knowledge this long. But what is Pam's motivation? Pam's motivation is money. And they do a good job of not making that super clear at the beginning. If there's any thread that leaves you wondering for the first couple episodes, it's why would Pam murder the person she claimed was her best friend? Because she spends a lot of time in the first episode and after, but a lot of the first episode is her explaining to everyone how Betsy was her best friend. And what you realize she's doing in the first episode is creating the the smokescreen of, of making herself a resource and an expert on Betsy to help other people understand who would have done such a horrible thing to Betsy. It's a, a great diversionary tactic, though you also watch her be really sloppy and inconsistent in it at the same time. So you see how she both thinks of herself as really clever and you watch as you already can tell she's not being as clever as she thinks she is. And while it is a lot of it seems very manipulative, at the same time, she seems to be falling for her own shtick, too, like in terms of the self-mythologizing about this incredible relationship she's had. They do these cutaway clips where they show her fantasy of how things went down or her version of events as she's telling them. And, um, you know, she really is in her mind this woman's defender. 
Yeah, and she's kind of the star of her own movie in a lot of these flashbacks. Yeah, I'm wondering if they'll have material, too, to make this go for several more episodes. I mean, I'm sure that they have something. I know how they make it go for several more episodes, by bringing in the meta. Because in episode three, we meet a producer from Dateline. A character who is a producer from Dateline and begins to research for the episode of Dateline. And I know for a fact in episode five, the episode of Dateline airs. So they are hitting a point where the story overlaps with the story of Dateline telling the story. And that is how they get six episodes out of this. Because initially, no, you don't get six episodes out of the story of the first trial and uh, the retrials. Spoiler alert, Diane, for the fourth episode you haven't seen yet, there's a retrial because that's how you get a fourth episode out of the the story. But where they get the final movement and Pam's fall from grace because uh, I don't need to Google Pam to know that Pam doesn't get away with it because you can't, (laughs) your lawyers won't let you make a TV show like this if she got away with it. Right. Um, Right, Well, I don't know. They made the people versus OJ Simpson, but that's a different show from a different time. Yes. And another one that perhaps falls into some similar thorny ethics and yet was a, Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. And once again, with a great cast, a great cast and some sharp, uh, witty writing can really paper over a lot of uh, questionable morality. And if that's not a lesson we can all take to the bank, I don't know what is. True, true. I I, I think Pam learned it the hard way. I I assume that's what we're going to find out in the final episodes. Uh, But there there is one other angle to this show that I wanted to bring up with you, because we very recently talked about another show based on a a true life villain, let's say, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber Mm -hmm. on Showtime, which on the surface is a completely different kind of show. Super Pumped is based on a book by a New York Times tech reporter and is uh, written and created by the people who write uh, Billions on Showtime. And it's about, a you know, Travis Kalanick, a, a tech wonderkind who disrupts the entire taxi industry. Like that, okay. And this is a show about small town Pam Hupp who murders her best friend and tries to cover it up. And then the small town, you know, shenanigans, to, to put it extremely mildly, that uh, surround the trial. Okay. But both of these shows are based on a true story, are about a villain as the main character who is painted as a villain from the get-go of the series. There is no ambiguity with either of them in their shows, as far as I I can tell. They both take a winking tone with the audience, where despite being dramas, they frequently have funny moments and knowing humor that, you know, instills a bit of dramatic irony, let's say. They both have a kind of bizarre narrator character who on Super Pumped mm. is Quentin Tarantino and and it is Quentin Tarantino if you if you've forgotten this detail it's not a character played by Quentin Tarantino it's Quentin Tarantino credited as Quentin Tarantino and then on uh Pam it's Keith Morrison of Dateline credited as Keith Morrison of Dateline doing the Keith Morrison voice from Dateline he also hosted the podcast and he has the the kind of standard narration lines you'd expect from a true crime show like Dateline, where it's things like, you know, but the police were only just at the beginning of the investigation. But then he also has lines like this one that I wrote down, where he said, 
Sometimes it's best to let the fish think it's catching you. Sometimes you cast so many lines, it makes a web. Was that a joke? I think it was. But what's great is it just fits in the series. And you go, the narration's a little over the top, isn't it? And then, on top of all of that, these shows both have flashbacks from the perspective of the main character, where we see the main character editing history to make it more favorable to them. Travis Kalanick Mm -hmm. does it with these Uh, very stylistically interesting green screen flashbacks where we see the story told the way he wants to tell it then we see it turn into a green screen and we see the reality that was much less glamorous with Pam we see it several times where she tells the story one way that makes her look good maybe somebody points out an inconsistency and she revises it and we see her tell it another way that makes her look even better or even different There's even a a version in one of the later episodes where she paints her relationship with Betsy as a softball-infused proto-lesbian love affair. Mm -hmm. Yet she also uh, fantasizes about Betsy having lost her hair from chemo. Yes. Like she's got like a head wrap on instead of, you know, we see Betsy in the first episode before her murder and and she still has her hair. I mean... there's this weird uh, savior complex going on. Yes. And honestly, that's maybe a great description for what unites these these two different shows and these two different characters is it's about these uh, people with savior complexes who think that they are the star of their own story, that no one should be able to stop them and that they have got the influence to manipulate everyone around them and in varying ways they both discover that they don't or that those powers are limited and i just found Mm. so many moments watching pam where where i thought this is the network tv version of super pumped this is the dateline small town version of super pumped the show's could simultaneously not be more different and not feel more similar to me. Yeah, I completely uh, agree with that. And I wonder if this is a trend we'll continue seeing of these very stylized moments with the sort of Adam McKay inserts of the of the meta narrative, um, which I, you know, I like it when it works. Uh, I like it when think... it works. And and I, I had the same complaint about both of these shows, which is that they don't they don't do it quite consistently enough. And, and it's a fine line, because if you do it too much, it feels like a lot. And if you don't do it enough, it feels inconsistent. And in both of these shows, I felt, I felt like they, they don't quite have a consistent flow. They don't do mm-hmm. it at the same ratio episode to episode. And that might be a lot to ask. And that might be, and in fact, if they did more of it, I might have the opposite complaint. And that's the trick with that, that choice. Uh, but sure. but it's it's interesting that such varied subject matters are trying it. Yeah, it also surprises me to say this, but I think Pam uses it better overall. <laughs> I, I need a couple. I need to see the wrap up of it to see if it if it sticks the landing with with how it uses it. Uh, mm-hmm. But but on the whole, because the whole conceit is wrapped up in the conceit of Dateline, it feels more fully realized whereas with super pumped i'm not sure what the conceit it's wrapped up in is like again i i don't understand why quentin tarantino is the narrator whereas i a hundred percent understand why keith morrison is the narrator and when he says some extremely mixed metaphor about fishing lines becoming webs (laughs) that catch your prey 
and maybe you get caught in it too. Like I, I know what they're what they're poking at. I know I know that he's saying something that is like what you'd hear on Dateline, but a little bizarre because this is the twisted fictional world version of Dateline. And I wonder if we'll end up seeing more of these Dateline to miniseries shows from NBC News Studios. It seems possible if if this continues to do well. I mean, Dateline has never felt more relevant to me. And and I do worry that in the back couple episodes, it's going to turn into some kind of glorified ad for Dateline as the, the okay. producer from Dateline becomes a major character and the airing of the Dateline episode becomes a major part of the narrative. But But at the same time... You know, the show takes place in like 2003 through 2006 or 7. It, it is of a different era when Dateline had a different weight about it. At least in my viewings on Peacock, it is not interspersed with ads for Dateline. It doesn't read like an ad campaign for Dateline. It reads more like, you remember Dateline, right? Well, here's a real Dateline story for you, but told in a way that's way more relevant to 2022's audiences. Dateline epitomized. Yeah. This very real person was murdered. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the troubling part. And at yeah. the same time, you know, we are both avowed fans of Law and & Order. And many of those right. stories are ripped from the headlines of very real people who were very, really dead. This is yeah. more transparently ripped from the headlines. And it is very well done. Yeah, and... In in many ways, nothing feels more American than that. You know, here in America, we love to kill other Americans. <laughs> we love to steal from them, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, this is truly the most American show of them all in more ways than one. And you, too, dear listener, can check it out on NBC or Peacock. If you do watch it and you think we're absolute monsters, well, let us know. The email address is podcast at streamageddon.com, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at I am Chris Varlow. Diane is at Diane Nora, Diane with two N's. Maybe if you think we're monsters, send that in an email. And if you think the show is really interesting, tweet that at us or leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, but you know what? We'd just love to hear from you anyway. And uh, no judgment if you love this show as much as we seem to and also no judgment if you think that we are worth judging for loving it as much as we do it's a complex uh, world we live in if the thing about pam has taught us anything it's that uh our culture loves a monster so this could really work out for us and with that i leave you with perhaps the most american thing i've found all week the jazzy version of the dateline theme <laughs> <laughs>